I'm going to teach very structurally, so I won't cover structure in and of itself. But um, here's a horizontal. Um, you guys don't need to make one. You will be. Yes, yay. Um, okay, yeah. So what I will say about the structure is that it begins and ends with a scene, one in heaven and one on earth, and it begins and ends with statements from Job, and it's like um, the author used this to frame the uh, poetry in the middle. Yes. And so chapters one to two are the prologue to the book. And here we're introduced to Job in his original happiness. And we see the heavenly scene and everything that happens to him. And so this section sets the stage for the conversations that are going to unfold in the poetry. Um, The prologue gives us the backdrop to the book and explains why people are just talking so much. And so throughout my, so I found these pictures and they are um, old drawings by a guy named William Blake who another guy colored, and so they're kind of weird, and I sprinkled them throughout because I thought they were awesome. Um, Super cool. The guy who colored them, his name is Butts, so in case you were wondering what his name was. Um, So who is Job? Well, we're introduced to our friend in the very first verse, and it reads, There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And so we see that Job worships worships Yahweh and he's super rad. And so the description of Job here is similar to the wise described in Proverbs, um, such as fearing the Lord and turning from evil. And so these verse references are from the book of Proverbs, not Job. So you can look and see um, if you want to. And so Job's character is not just attested to us by the narrator, but God also confirms his character too in 1 verse 8 and 2 verse 3. And so this is a clue for us, the readers, that in the dialogue, when the friends say, Job, you're suffering because you sinned. You're a bad guy. We know that that's just not true because the narrator and God have affirmed his character. And so Job begins as the epitome of the wise and of the sage in Proverbs. He is godly and wise. And according to the wisdom set forth in Proverbs, Job's wisdom and godliness should be followed by material blessings. And it is. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and many servants. Okay. And so from 1, verse 6 to 12, and also in 2, 1 through 6, we arrive at the heavenly scenes. And so what's going on? The um, heavenly beings, or the sons of God, as your footnote in the NRSV says, that um, they are <laughs> presenting themselves before Yahweh. And so in the AME, there was a common belief in something that scholars call the divine counsel. And we see it twice in the prologue of Job, as well as in other books. And this is not an exhaustive list, it's just um, some examples. And so this was the ancient belief that there was a main god for Israel, it was Yahweh, over all of the other gods, and here it's like angels for Israel. Um, Or heaven, sons of God. I didn't mean to say angels. That was my mistake. Okay, so there was a hierarchy of sorts in this belief. And so a helpful modern-day analogy for this is that God is like the chief of staff, 
and the heavenly beings are his staff team to whom he has delegated responsibilities. It's like Jesse and the rest of us. Jesse is the head, and he just tells us what to do. (laughs) So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just thought it was important to go over because it's a concept that you might run into in the future. Um, And so some people take these scenes and try to figure out the details of how heaven works and what it's like there, what happens. Um, But the point is not to give us a breakdown of how heaven works. And John Walton puts it this way. The book is focusing on how God works in the world, not teaching us about how things work in heaven. Um, Okay. And so we're in the divine council and Satan is invited. What's up? So why is the incarnation of evil just chilling there in the throne room? Or is this the uh, heavenly being Lucifer, as some of us call him, the snake from Genesis 3? Um, to make a very long story short, I went down a week-long rabbit trail in, on this topic in my prep. Um, there are people who believe that this character is Satan, as we understand him from a New Testament point of view. And there are people who believe what the NRSV says in its footnote, that this character is simply an accuser in God's court. Um, so, yes, the way that the author thought about this character and the way that the OR, whoever that is, um, thought about it is probably not the way that we do coming from a 21st century cultural river and having what we know from the New Testament. And so the Hebrew word used here in Job is the noun satan, which means accuser, with the definite article ha, which is that, attached to it. So it's ha-satan, or in English, the accuser. And so as a verb form, it means to accuse or oppose as an adversary. And here are some first references. As a noun, it means an accuser, one opposed, an adversary. And it can be applied to human beings and also celestial beings. Um, yes. other references of Satan later on? Um, I believe it's in. Is this like a specific name? Um, so it's not being referred to as a personal name, and I haven't looked into like Zechariah or those things, so I wouldn't be able to tell you definitively. Um, do you know? Yeah. So anytime in the New Testament that they use that phrase, it's always the same. Even in the New Testament. Uh, New Testament. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Nate. Um, and so what's important to realize is that in Hebrew, this is not a proper name of a precise individual. Um, the word is not being used to refer to someone the way that we would say, Nate came to Starbucks. It'd be more like, the man came to Starbucks. <laughs> Um, So it's not a personal name, and the personal name of Satan only begun being used around 200 BC. Um, And so I believe that the evidence points fairly heavily towards this not being Satan as we understand him, um, and that this is just an accuser in God's divine counsel, and I'm going to pretty much leave it at that. Um, I don't see the point in going into too much more detail, because whatever you think of him, he plays a teeny tiny role, and we must remember that. 
And so, if you want to, you know, talk about, have a casual conversation about where Satan is and is not in the Old Testament, let's grab coffee sometime. Um, but we will not be discussing that further here. And so, what happens here in the heavenly scene? Um, so, God's divine counsel is called together, and there's an accuser. So, in one eight, God asks the accuser a question, and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so God brings Job up as an incredible example of what righteousness is supposed to look like. To this, the accuser says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the accuser proposes that the reason Job is righteous is because God has blessed and protecting him, implying that when God takes that blessing and that protection away, Job's righteousness would stop in its tracks. And so another way of putting it um, is that Job only loved God because of what God did for him, and that when God stopped blessing him, Job's love and devotion would cease. And this is what the accuser came, claims. And so scholars will phrase it this way. Um, I wasn't here in the Song of Songs teaching, but Jer messaged me something that John Randerson said, and so I like the way that this is phrased, um, and sort of the way that John put it. Um, yeah, so. Okay. And so the accuser brings up something that we have learned about before, most notably in the book of Proverbs, which is the retribution principle, defined as the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. The accuser provides the thought that perhaps God's policy of rewarding the righteous actually skews the results, and that people would have no incentive for righteousness if God took away their prosperity. And so the accuser is not directly challenging Job. He's challenging God's um, policy by raising the question of whether or not God should reward all good deeds and punish all bad ones. Um, Yes. And so... Okay. So the accuser's claim is this. It is counterproductive to prosper the righteous. his policy and to his faithful servant's righteousness. And he says, very well, all that he has is in your power, only do not stretch out your hand against him. And the accuser is on his way to Job, who will become the case study to find out, is it love or self-serving greed that motivates a person to be righteous? And so, that should have been there. Um, What is the purpose of this heavenly scene and of this insider information that we get? First of all, it shows that Job is innocent with what happens next. He has not committed a sin deserving what befalls him. 
And this is important because that premise alone moves beyond the assumptions of other ancient Near East wisdom literature. So this is huge. Um, yes. And so secondly, it establishes that it is not Job who is on trial. Job's righteousness is established for the purpose of focusing on God's policy. And so this can be a difficult passage, I do admit, if you take the book as being a historical event. And so why does God make bets with the devil as though humans are just mere pawns in the cosmic scheme of things? I don't know what to say to that because I don't believe that's what's going on. Um, in the interpretation I hold to, this is not historical event, but, at, but as Israelite wisdom literature, Job follows the pattern of crafting a story around a well-known figure. And so with that interpretation, this heavenly scene is the... Um, is part of the literary design of a thought experiment to generate discussion and what God wants to talk about and how he runs the cosmos. And so, I'm missing my slides. So the heart and the message of the book comes at the end, not in the beginning chapters that set up the poetry, which will explore the intricacies and seeming injustices of how God runs the world. Okay. And so Job's first test happens after um, God grants the challenge. And so verses 13 to 19 tell us about the worst day in Job's life so far. And he has four messengers of destruction tell him what happened. First, oxen and donkeys were taken and the servants were killed. Second, the sheep and the servants were consumed by fire. Third, the camels were taken and the servants were killed. And fourth, and most devastatingly, his children were killed in a freak accident. And so, let's pause for just a second. What just happened here? What does this mean? This means that everything that Job had worked for in his life was gone in an instant. All his savings, everything that was going to last him to old age, um, so that he could live comfortably, comfortably, his security is wiped out, and not only his physical possessions, but his children. I'm not a parent, and I don't know anyone who has had any of their children die before them, but I can't even, and I don't want to, imagine the grief that the author is painting here. And not just one child, but all of his children were dead, and so the grief must have been unbearable. And so... What happens after Job heard this quartet of couriers bearing bad tidings is in chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, it says this. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Job's response to this was worship. Worship in the midst of his grief. Praise in the middle of his pain. And it was instant. There was no time Job took to let his emotions settle and then go to job, but when he was hurting, he ran straight to the arms of Yahweh. And so, what a response, I think. I, I believe that this is truly convicting. Um, 
Do we go right to God when we hear bad news? Do we run right to his arms when we are in pain? Do we disconnect our time of hurting from our time of worshiping him as if those two are incompatible? Do we allow our grief, our pain, and suffering to separate our hearts from God? What is our response to suffering? Um, alrighty, so it's before 10 o'clock, and I went a little faster than I thought that I would, um, uh, yes, the slides, yeah. yeah, totally, you can have them, um, so we will keep moving on, yes, okay, alright, so, in yes, chapters 2, verses 1 to 6, we have another scene in the Divine Council, and there's a lot of repetition with the first scene, um, and so it sounds pretty much the same. However, there are a few differences. After God vouches for Job's character again, he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 3, he still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. So even though all of Job's possessions were lost, and even through the pain of his children's deaths, not only did he go to God first, but he actually maintained his integrity and his righteousness through it all. Job was still righteous, and it was not just for what God gave him. This is good news. And so then comes the second test. The accuser says that if God reached out and caused him personally to suffer physically, Then Job would curse God, and it would prove that Job's righteousness was motivated for reward. Maybe Job wasn't righteous because of the blessings that God gave, but maybe he is righteous, maybe he does love you because of the physical protection that you give him. And so again, God grants this challenge and allows the accuser to test Job once more. And test Job, he does. Job is inflicted with head-to-toe sores, And not only would this have been very painful, but it would have been a shameful thing for someone who was once held in such high esteem to be suffering like this. And so this time, Job's reaction is not to worship God. But according to his wife, he still persists in his integrity. And so she says to him in chapter 2, verse 9, curse God and die. Instead, Job replies, shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? Again, this response shows Job's incredible character. And so Job has passed the test so far, which is good news. If he had succumbed to his wife's um, suggestion that he curse God and die, that response from Job would have made God lose his case against the accuser, um, who argues that it is counterproductive to to reward the righteous because it creates people who do good to get good. So God's policy still stands because of Job's righteousness, but we're not out of the clear yet, as we will see through the words of the next three characters that we are introduced to. And so Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard what happened to Job, and in chapter 2, verse 11, they met together to go and console and comfort him. 
And so I kind of wonder if the author was being sarcastic because, as we all know, we've read the book, there isn't a whole lot of comfort and consolation going on from the friends. They actually end up doing the exact opposite. Um, and so when his friends arrived, they didn't even recognize him at first. And then they wept, they tore their robes, they threw dust in the air on their heads. Without even talking to Job, they were able to see how deep the river of his grief went. And after the reunion, under unfortunate circumstances, they probably did the only good thing they did in the entire book, which was to sit with him for seven days and seven nights in complete and utter silence. Yes? I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, you're really fine. There's a pause. Uh, we said that you don't believe my job is a real person. Um, I believe that, so Job is ancient Near East wisdom literature from the Hebrew people. And other works in that same category from different cultures don't necessarily, aren't necessarily talking about a historical event. And so I gave you a handout that talks a little bit about it more. Um, but that's what I lean towards. And by all means, you do not have to take that interpretation. It's completely up to you. Um, yeah, but I believe that because it seems more contextual from the OR's point of view. If it was common in the surrounding cultures to do the same thing. And so that's what I believe. Yep. Okay, so it's 10 o'clock. 10, oh, we're going to 10.15? Okay, all right. We're going to 10.15. Okay, so Job's opening statement. Um, And so after seven days of sitting in silence, Job finally snaps. And so these are the words of a broken and of a hurting man. And his emotions are tangible not only in this chapter, but through every word that he speaks. It's like a lament, but it's not, because laments are complaining to God and then turning around and praising him. And so this chapter, at least, doesn't seem directed to God. It's just straight pain. And so Job curses the day of his birth. Job asks rhetorical questions to the effect of, why was I even born at all? And so... Throughout the book, but first in this chapter, we see a theme of light and darkness. And so, taking a look at 3.20, Job uses one of our figurative labels here, and it's one that's not super common, um, but I like noticing it when you see it. So, It is called a metonymy, and so he uses light in place of life, and this is um, a theme that we'll see throughout the book. And so, from 20 to 23... Job says, why is light given to the one in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it does not come and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? And so this is heavy stuff. Did you guys sense, did you feel the atmosphere when you were reading it? Yeah? And so in verse 24, Job says why he is asking all of these questions. Why he is seeking and longing for death. He says, For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. 
And so this simile communicates that his sighing and his groaning are common, everyday things. This is his normal now. I can't help but to think what Job was experiencing was somewhere on the spectrum of like depression or anxiety or PTSD covering Job in a blanket of darkness, and he just feels choked and suffocated by it all, and he longs for death. He's suicidal. When someone talks like this to a therapist nowadays, they tend to be hospitalized. And so in 26, Job says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The words he's using are similar to a way that he described death earlier, except that in death one actually finds these things, and he is alive and finding no ease, no quiet, no rest right now. He's saying death would actually be better than this pain. And so I don't know the intimate details about everybody's story here in class, um, But it's my guess that these volatile and very real emotions that Job cries out are not entirely foreign to some of us in here today. I know I can relate, and in fact I resonate with what Job expresses here and throughout the book. So I have battled mental illness since the age of 13. I was diagnosed with manic depression as well as anxiety and insomnia. And if any of you have struggled with similar issues, you know the battle that I'm talking about. It's the battle in your mind. And so I was consumed by self-hatred, an eating disorder, a self-harm addiction, suicidal thoughts, and suicide attempts. I lived in what Job very rightly calls the land of deep darkness, And I could not run away because the land of deep darkness was my mind. And I did not, uh, and there was no escape from that, not one that I successfully made. And so the thoughts that I had during the worst of these times are unexplainable. I, I haven't find words that quite fit the despair and the hopelessness, but Job's words come pretty close. My high school experience and into my college years was defined by psychologists and psychiatrists and psychiatric hospitals. It absolutely controlled my life for four years and has continued to be a struggle after. I look back on those years and to remember when something happened, I don't think about what grade I was in. Um, The way that I remember things was, was which therapist was I seeing at the time, which psychiatrist was I going to, and between which hospital stays did this event happen. And so it's not always a popular opinion in Christianity, but I thank God for the miracle that is medicine and other treatment options, and I know that God used those to keep me alive. And so after high school, I still had episodes, I still had problems, and I struggled with these things although not as often. The battle with my mind defined my identity for a very, very long time. It has shaped my experience in life. Even now, there are days when I walk and at times resort to crawling through the valley of the shadow of death that is created by nothing other than the imbalanced chemicals um, between my ears. And so there were many moments when the only thing I could say, I could scream, I could cry out, was why. 
There was a time I yelled why to the universe because I didn't really believe in God. Then there was a time when I screamed why at God, the God of my parents, whom I held at arm's distance, because I thought that he did this to me and he enjoyed it. I withheld my love from him just like I thought he had withheld wholeness from me. Then there was a time when he became my God, and I still cried out why, because what I wanted was an answer for why my life was a living hell for so many years, and why I was often still struggling. All this to say, Job is one of my favorite books. I identify with him and his emotions and his questions and his wrestle makes sense to me because it's been my own questions and my own wrestle with God over the years. And so it's a book that my heart understands and I will explain how my heart has found resolution to some of my suffering through this prep at the end of the day. Yeah? Okay, all right. So, after Job's opening statement, we arrive at the next section, which is the dialogue um, between Job and his three friends. And so, before starting this section, I did want to cover some things that are important to help us um, understand the book, as well as tools so that when you guys go back and study this book more in depth, um, things will hopefully make a little more sense because, as you know, Job is a special assignment. Um, yes, okay. So, there are three separate cycles in the dialogue from chapters 4 to 27. And so, um, in this section, the friends and the, and the Job uh, <laughs> will alternate speaking. It'll go Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, so far, Job. And then wash, rinse, repeat three times. And so there are three distinct cycles. And while they all follow the same format, there are differences in the focus um, of each cycle. And they do get more intense as time goes on. And so the first is chapters 4 to 14. Um, and here the friends offer advice, give generalizations about the way they have observed the world to work. As well as hold out hope for Job's restoration. And in the second cycle, in chapters 15 to 21, um, here the friends focus on the fate of the wicked, as well as insults and humiliate Job with insinuations about what he did to deserve this. And then the third cycle is from 22 to 27, and here there are direct accusations of Job's character and his behavior. And so all three friends do stick to the themes, to the common theme in the cycle. Um, and they do share the same worldview, which was common in the ancient Near East, which is of a strict retribution principle. Again, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. And so while there is this shared belief, there is a different way that each of them approaches the retribution principle. And I'm going to start calling that the RP. And so Eliphaz gives most weight to his own personal experiences, what he's seen, what he's heard. Bildad relies on the wisdom of the ages, the traditions of the elders, and Zophar is inclined to see things in black and white as strict. This is the way the world works. Okay. And so the three friends represent ancient Near East wisdom. Um, 
And so, in the A&E, there were three avenues you could take when you found yourself in Job's position. You could try divination um, to see what um, sin you committed against the gods or just what they wanted from you. You could say incantations to try and exercise, exorcise um, the source of evil from your life. Or you could take the appeasement route um, and appease the gods through blanket confessions of sins. And so Job's friends take the appeasement approach. And in these rituals, it didn't actually matter which sins you committed. Um, The point was to confess them all until suffering just stopped. And so they didn't know what sins they could accuse Job of, and so they ended up accusing him of all of the sins. Um, Because they presupposed the RP, and because of his current situation, they perceived Job as guilty, and this is why they urged him to confess. All three of them see the point of Job's confession and repentance is that so Job will once more have favor, status, and prosperity. And so the friends share a similar perspective as to the way other cultures would do rituals to appease the gods that they could earn health, wealth, and happiness. Manipulation of the gods as if they were nothing more than mere cosmic vending machines. And so along with representing um, any belief, the friends also represent the accuser's case. And so they... um, Yes, try to have Job appease God's wrath as evidenced by Job's suffering through confession of sin. And this is um, important uh, because they're arguing for the accuser's case. And so this is one reason why we don't actually see him pop up in the rest of the book because the friends sort of take over his role. And so... It's really important that Job refuse to appease God because he knows that he hasn't committed any sin. If Job does, then um, the accuser's case would be proved true that God rewarding the righteous creates people who do good to get good. However, what we see is that Job is not interested in regaining his physical possessions, but what he is interested in is his um, reputation as a man who is righteous before God. And so, let's talk about setting again. So, while the setting for the book, um, yes, anyways, yeah. Okay, so, the setting in the book is that of a courtroom, and all characters assume this location. And so, it is, um, It is a triangle, and each corner is represented by different beliefs. And so at the beginning, each belief is accepted as true, but as the book progresses, it becomes logically impossible to accept all three as true. And so the three beliefs are over here the retribution principle, up here God's justice, and here Job's righteousness. And so... The three friends are clearly in this corner, and they accept God's justice and um, throw out Job's righteousness. They don't believe that he actually could be righteous with what happened to him. And so Job 
He knows he's righteous. It's no speculation. He lived his life. And so Job is firmly in this corner, but his belief in the retribution principle also is just so ingrained in his mind that he can't break away from that. Um, so he affirms the retribution principle, and as a result, he questions or severely doubts God's justice. And so Elihu, which is the fourth friend who we'll talk about later, is firmly in the corner of God's justice, but he's also too closely tied to the retribution principle um, for his perspective to be completely okay, and he also questions Job's righteousness. Um, so this is the um, cognitive setting, you can say, of the book of Job. Um, yes. And so... This is what's being argued in the dialogue, and we're finding out the answer to that, um, the accuser's charge. However, um, what we'll see later is that there's actually a counterclaim to God's actions by Job, um, and we see that in chapter 31, and so we'll talk about that when we get here. It's 10.15, so we will take a break. <laughs>